all your hints and tips are i okay. think in the questions that i've prepared okay. so okay. but if there's right. again if there's anything else if i miss anything please feel free to say hey md shut <laughs> okay. up about jack Kerouac <laughs> and let us talk uh, okay sure <laughs> Yeah. No, no, we want it to be a threesome, Jason. <laughs> That's oh, Jesus Christ. There's the pull quote. There's <laughs> the <laughs> show. Put that on tape. John's looking at me. Jesus. I didn't know it was going to go down the toilet so quickly. Well, there you go. Joe, how do you say it in Japanese? And how do you say it in English? Thanks, man. Welcome back to Writers Read Their Early Shit, conversations with authors and artists about the lopsided pleasures of their pre-developed, over-early, unripe work. I'm your guide, Jason Emdy, and I've been angling to have this episode's guest on from the very beginning. Now, he's a professional writer and editor who's published six volumes of poetry, one volume of short stories, two novels, and a book of conversations about the writing life with Robert Croach. He was named Poet Laureate of the Okanagan Valley, which is my old job, in 2009. He's also a singer-songwriter whose 2018 album, Strange Ground, is a must. He taught creative writing and literature courses at Okanagan College for over 30 years. And it was one of the greatest teachers I ever had, there or anywhere else. He's now retired from teaching, walks his dog Mosey every day, writes a bit, and appears in movies such as Orange Lamphouse Studios' recent documentary, Why We Write Poets of Vernon. He writes the way he sings, a little bit behind the beat, just enough to turn you on. I'm talking, of course, about John Lent. Now, John Lent happens to live with the exquisite visual artist Jude Clark. Jude started as a painter at six years of age when her mom asked Miss Jessie Topham Brown if Jude could attend her art classes held above an old garage station whatever that is, in Vernon in 1961. Uh, Miss Topham Brown had never had a student that young. But Jude passed her audition and attended classes till she was 12 and her social life started happening. Since then, she's had solo exhibitions and been part of group and juried shows in Vernon, Vancouver and Strasbourg, France. Now, Jude is a careful observer of landscape and is interested in the psychology of place. She's also a damn fine writer herself and the author of The Language of Water, a nonfiction memoir about living with systemic lupus. Now, these are two of my favorite artists who are, as people, every bit as good as their work. And you can't say that about everybody. Distinguished listeners, I am all parts pleased to welcome John Lent and Jude Clark to the show. Hi, guys. Hi, hey. Jason. Thank you so much for making the time for this. Hey, it's great. Thank you for having us uh, together. I can't wait to get into this. But before we get to your early shit, I've got a few huge, pretentious questions, okay? Here we go. Fire away, Jason. <laughs> We're ready. We the first, you, you think. The first one is for, for both of you. In a New Yorker article about uh, her quasi-embarrassed affection for Jack Kerouac, Amanda Petrusich, I think that's how you say her name, once wrote, the books we read as teenagers, the ones that get inside us and rearrange things, are sacred, even when they're plainly imperfect. Now, what are a couple of those books for you guys? Well, for me, it was definitely The Secret Garden, <laughs> childhood book, mm. because I, I'm a gardener. And uh, that was, I just, that opened my whole world to gardening. And it's never left? Never. I still have a book. When was the last time you read it? 
Uh, John actually bought it for me, the new version, but I, I had the really old faded green cloth book that was given to me by my aunt. Mm-hmm. And um, it was left in my parents' house and I don't have it now. So that's why John um, ordered the new one. All right. How about you, John? Well, <laughs> I just imagine a scene from an early Woody Allen movie where the clock starts going around. <laughs> He's still talking four hours later. Yeah. Okay, so the very first book I remember uh, was uh, a Scottish novel called Treasure Island uh, by, you know, oh, God, what's his name? He's so great. Uh, doesn't matter. Anyway, it was just about pirates and that. But I was really young, and my aunt, who was an English teacher, my dad's aunt, actually, my great aunt, Irene, was getting me to read the book. And I, I could I could actually pronounce words like Hispaniola and stuff like that. And so she was a real encourager of me because I love the book, right? The, the second book was an Enid Blyton book called Island of Adventure. <laughs> well, exploring a theme all about yeah, pirates yeah. again and robbers. But, but it was so beautiful. And I remember just uh, that whole deal of being lost in a in a big hardcover book. I loved it. Mm. Uh, and then later, you know, I mean, like in terms of the modern world or whatever, it was it was books, really typical books like uh, Lord of the Flies and uh, Franny and Zoe by J.D. Salinger. They were books about ideas, and uh, they were ideas I didn't have uh, as a kid at all, right? So they were new. It was opening up stuff for me. Uh, yeah, so, you know, there, there's always books. We, we were serviced by a bookmobile. Uh, in South Edmonton when I was a kid. And so that was in itself this whole magical thing. You walk up into this bus, this old clammy bus. and uh, It's <laughs> just driving around the neighborhood? It would stop it um, in, in front of your house? Yeah, no, it would stop in front of the school, but the school was only a block from my house, right? So I could go in it and you could you could get these books for like two weeks for nothing. It was pretty darn neat. Yeah. So all those things were ways in which, you know, I just had access to books. Yeah. Okay. I like the pirate theme, John, because that's how I've always seen you as a pirate. Um, Jude's trying to tell me something here. No, I'm not. <laughs> Why don't you tell I just, me? I, no, I just want to, the author of Tinker Pilgrim. Tinker, oh, Annie Tinker. Dillard. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Sorry, I thought you were going to. Tell, ask me to say to Jason that was a favorite book of mine no. when I was 11. No. Okay. <laughs> no. Okay, sorry, Jason. 11-year-old <laughs> John curled up. Yeah. getting Climbing out of the, clambering out of the clammy bus with you know that, that's anyway. the kind of kid he that's was okay. right <laughs> yeah it's pretty earnest people pleaser so you know yeah, what yeah. the heck <laughs> okay. but we won't go there no, no. not no. yet not no yet. okay yeah. uh this this is for jude now most of the writers that i know including myself uh went through an early period where the where the more gargoyles you had in your in your poems, you know, the the more darkness and Nazis and bemoaning and swearing and suicide and black roses falling from the sky. Wow. And, wow. Oh God, I'm so depressed, you know. 
the more authentic and and gritty and impressive it felt, you know. Uh, right. Now, do young or beginning painters tend to go through something similar? Oh no, <laughs> no. Now some would for sure, like the young young boys, especially right now. <laughs> they they do all that kind of stuff, and you know it kind of starts out with dinosaurs now, and then it goes into the the other all the the shows that your boys would be watching now and know about. So I think your son Joe is a he's drawing, isn't he? He draws a bit from time to time. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that you know as um, he might be interested in stuff like that, but no, I, I wasn't interested in in anything like that. I was just kind of. Um, God, I just got paint really young and started just painting and and um, it wasn't really representational at six years old, but it was um, <laughs> mm. <laughs> it was it was just really uh, you know the color and shape and line even then like that's what I do now and and um, even at that young age, I was really interested in that because mm. of all the hiking around in our valley up in the um, the trails around the lakes and stuff, those kinds of things always um, got my attention in my in my painting, even as a kid. Were you born in Vernon Jew? Yeah, the Vernon Jubilee. Wow. <laughs> I didn't know that. Oh, ah, yeah. okay. And yeah. then can you, <laughs> first of all, tell me what a garage station is, and then, <laughs> and then also uh, what do you remember about those classes? Yeah, well, it's so funny that you asked me that because um, that's what both John and I would call those things back when we were kids. And and it's basically there was a couple of mechanics downtown in a in a station or a building and they had a hydraulic lift and you could even get gas there. But you could just bring your car in and, you know, check for a flat tire or if there was something wrong with the engine back in that day when they did that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And so the NIST Miss Jessie Tobin Brown, she had the whole upstairs of the gas station and it was all, it was an art studio for teenagers and adults. And you were six. Yeah. So, so my brother got, he started lessons with her when he was about 12 or 14 <laughs> and uh, mom found out one day that he was playing hooky and wasn't showing up. And so Jessie Tobin Brown phoned mom and, and um, he just went off be with his friends uh, you know in the park or something instead of going to the classes and I I was just I think at that point I just said to her well I really want to take classes and so um she kind of asked um, Miss Tobin Brown if I could and you know she said well I've never had a kid that young so she'll be on probation <laughs> right from the beginning <laughs> yeah and the, and the weirdest thing for me was when I went up those high stairs the first day there was one other student in the classroom and he was probably 12 or 14 and it was just him and me and of course I thought oh my god he's so good and what am I going to paint and the first thing I painted was um there was a um one of those jumping things the um, trampoline there's trampoline um, thing across the highway and the kids were jumping up and down on that and so I painted those <laughs> the jumping thing I like that it's uh, yeah jumping down on the trampolines <laughs> and that was my very first painting and the guy next to me you know was doing a very fine um detailed kind of um there was a pot and a you know glass and something that he was drawing <laughs> so I felt very little <laughs> I, I don't know the jumping thing across the street from the from the garage 
station. I yeah. like there's something in there. There's a poem in there, John. There's yeah. a poem in there. Taking notes right now. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> All right. I like that image. And, you know, a name like Miss Jessie Topham Brown sounds almost Dickensian. And I'm trying to imagine you going up these steps. You know, there are a couple couple grease monkeys in the, in the garage station yeah. you know, on hey. the smoke break. Hey, yeah. that. And that's exactly <laughs> what it was. And, you know, I kind of and I, I think mom must have taken me the first time. And then every other time I go, she dropped me off and I walk up them. And, you know, there's this huge room of just full of art supplies and tables. And then separate rooms for doing still life painting and stuff, mm-hmm. but never a group of people, just kind of wow. the one guy and me. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> yeah, and then I would just walk down afterwards when the class was over, um, down to Main Street in Vernon, and um, to my dad's um, pharmacy business okay. at six, which kids probably wouldn't do yeah, these days. Yeah. yeah, no, the parents would go to jail if if yeah, that happened exactly. these days. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Back in the starting place in a blue room A child is moving in time to a tune The child grins and begins to dance Innocence held in a long glance This is where you live, where you live, where you live, where you This is where you live, where you live, where you live Live in the open, live in your love And that leads right into John I wanted to ask you, you taught writing for a long, long time there. What are the primary problems with the work of young and or beginning writers? And and also, what are the strengths? Well, that's a, that's a nice uh, double part question, actually, because, <laughs> of course, I wanna, I'm full of mischief tonight because it's you. Uh, but <laughs> w- what's, what's the most dangerous thing? Uh, is a gothic 14 point uh, <laughs> font. <laughs> you know it's going to be pretty pretty bad. And so I, I eventually, years into it, I, I would actually say on the course outline, I think, please, please spare me the gothic 14 point printing because you've written a horror story. <laughs> and and I, think, I think from the beginning, I was very hard on people who were trying to show off, right? And, and uh, I get that from my dad, I think. Uh, yeah, if you were trying to just show off, I, I'd probably pick on on you a bit, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, by that, I just mean like to try to say, you know, I, you know, I, I, can we say whatever we want here on this interview? Of course. Okay, so, so you know, it's just swear a lot and, you know, the severed heads, a bunch of naked <laughs> you know <laughs> like all that stuff eventually you know from the teacher's point of view is kind of like oh Jesus there's a great novel by uh this woman uh, Francine prose called Blue Angel and the opening paragraph this creative writing instructor who sits down and he can hear all the purses clicking in the air as they're closed by the students and books shuffled and he kind of waits till that kind of settles down a bit and he says, is it just me? He said, or is everybody writing about humans having sex with animals now? <laughs> and I, I try to read it like in a second, third year creative writing class, that paragraph, and I wouldn't make it, right? Because I'd be laughing way too hard yeah. before I could get to the punchline. Right? <laughs> I think one of the frustrations has to do with just, yeah, it's just that whole thing of, 
of how to get attention or how to show off or how to use a lot of swear words when you've got nothing much else to say. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Swear words come in very handy when you've got nothing to say. That's when true. you've got nothing to say. Exactly. You know, <laughs> sex on a crucifix. You know, pretty well, well done. But yes. the good thing, and this is where my heart actually is, is I had the most amazing s- students, including you. You were incredible. You guys had so much fun. I was very lucky, right? And so the beautiful thing about, especially teaching creative writing, but lit too, is that the students would just, they just make me laugh so much. And, the, and we had a lot of fun, right? And so I'm just eternally grateful for that. I still am, right? I miss that probably more than, well, I know I miss that more than anything. This question is for both of you. Would you, would you trust each other to write each other's biography? Well, yeah, I would write, I could write his and he could write mine, but they wouldn't be accurate, I'm sure. (laughs) You know, just all the details. I mean, his is probably 20 pages long and mine's maybe, um, you know, maybe five. (laughs) No, no. no. Yeah. So what do you mean by that, Jason? Like, what do you mean? (laughs) Trust each other. (laughs) Well, a question I thought about for other for other guests was, who would you most like to have write your biography? If you could pick anybody, living or dead, actually, to to write your biography, who would that be? Oh. That maybe is a question for you guys, too. But then I thought, well, okay, you've got two writers who live in the same house. Are they better set up to write about each other or or not? Is this a disaster or or is it glorious? Not sure. Well, our the fact that we work together in the same place is a really interesting kind of little motif all in itself because we we've experienced that really intensely and and more loosely right but but we've experienced it for you know 46 years so it's kind of interesting um but the question of who you choose to write your biography is really that's a really great question because probably not yeah for probably. each other yeah, yeah, probably not. You yeah. know, I, I, someone would have to be really twisted and dark, and and uh, Jude's not that. <laughs> She's so nice <laughs> to write my biography. I'm just reading a biography right now of W. G. Seabold, and I know. She's going to avoid stuff, right? Because he is, he's a really difficult subject and he was a really difficult guy in lots of ways. I just mean by that he hit a lot of things, right? So. So whoever's going to write that biography has to has to know about hiding and 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 uh, concealing. And now I think she's really good, this mm-hmm. this writer, but I don't know quite how it's going to work out, right? And mm-hmm. so for me, like I have a, a a friend that I met here late in the game uh, when I was teaching, who was trained very much like me and has the same sense of humor and is uh, is quite funny. And his name is Jake Kennedy, and he's a beautiful poet. Um, and, and he could write both of our biographies, I think. Yeah, I would I would choose Jake for sure because um he's one of the the person that um actually asks the the biggest questions about art to me and and describes um my art in the most detailed way that that gets a little deeper than you know color and and um, if it's pretty or, you know, if it's mm. if, it, if he's enjoying it or something. So he's given me some really neat reactions that um, 
I've really held on to and I really appreciate them. So, yeah, yeah so I guess Jake could do both of us. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, you know, as a model for that, right, there's all sorts of people like uh, like you, for example, you and I have a very similar sense of humor, right? So, mm. but I but I would trust you, but whereas poor Jude, to ask her to read into all that stuff, whereas <laughs> yeah. I know you, you're very accustomed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, but no. anyway, anyway, yeah. yeah. You would be better at that. You would yeah. be better at that, Jason. <laughs> well, maybe. We'll see. In the morning when the birds rise up, their song becomes the world. My feet move down through the house. The day starts to unfurl. I get the coffee going And wake you with a smile And we sit talking for a while It's, uh, you know, it's a thing, I have this thing about gravity And um, so I don't want gravity in my paintings That I mean the actual gravity um, but I also don't want the gravity of um, your life, your soul. And so that's why everything in the abstraction becomes um, something that's floating in the air. And um, it intermingles and sometimes the shapes interact and, and the lines definitely guide you in a rhythm through the painting. And um, and that for me is my expression. That's that's how I I paint. This is something I was talking with Bronwyn Tate about, how poetry begins and should settle in the body. We tend to think of it as, oh, you read it and it's a mental thing and figure out the symbols and the mystery and crack right. the code and so on. It's all in your head. But we were talking about how it's, that's not how it started and that's not how it should be. It's in the body. It's dance and movement and the, the whole yeah. thing. It sounds like you're sort of talking about the same thing that it's not, this is not something you just go look at and go, oh, that's a, pretty good representation of uh, Kalmelka Lake, you know, and yeah. I can see the, the this abstract explosion in the background is clearly her subconscious coming through. It's not like that at all, right? This no. is something that you can float in and swim in and feel yeah. with your body. Is yeah. that right? It completely. And mm -hmm. also because I walk the trails all over with John and Mosey, our dog, um, my peripheral vision really guides that too. So that, you know, when you're walking along a trail or wherever, or even a street in a city, what you catch out of the, the edges of your eyesight, mm -hmm. for me, that becomes um, something that be, if I want to draw it into the painting and the theme of the series, that that will guide me. And so I've got concrete images to guide me, but I like to turn them into movement and things that connect um internally as well as externally mm. through shape and line and color and um, movement mm. it's so beautiful what she's saying and what you're saying with her too that i think if you ask me a different question i would say that it took me my whole life to move from a very cerebral kind of process to a very physical body thing right so in other mm. words that for me too, in poetry and in fiction, it was it was moving into the rhythms of my body that probably was the ultimate ground for me, like an electrical ground. It was 
yeah, I really had my my feet on the ground. Yeah, and you you really started out like you know Jason with um, academics, right? Like he studied. You should talk about this, John. But you yeah, know, schizophrenia in in the plays of T. S. Eliot. Yeah. What on earth? Yeah. What? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. What? Yeah. what? Moti asks that to me. He'll look at me and say, "What, <laughs> what were you thinking, John?" Moti. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no. And I love being a student. I just absolutely love being a student. But the danger, there's not a danger. It's just that I had so many voices in my head by the time I was 23, 24 years old that I then had to, yeah, it took me a long time to find a different way to think about these things, probably. Yeah. Mm. Well, that's, this is another thing I wanted to ask you, John, because you were one of the first writing mentors I ever had. And by that, I mean, you know, maybe a teacher or maybe somebody, a writer I admired or was trying to imitate or whatever. But you were one of the first who encouraged looking deeply at, I think it was Faulkner who called it my own little postage stamp of land, right? And writing about where and, and who you are, you know, that whole thing about a life worth telling. And then there's Jude's interest too in the psychology of place. Now, yes. could both of you talk a, a little about that? I mean, how that interest developed, how long it took to develop, and how you've approached it and played with it over the years? Yeah, well, look at it. I'm going to go first and I'm going to make mine brief because I could get lost in that question and my answer uh, too much, right? And then I'm going to let Jude. <laughs> She's so great at talking about these things. And I mean that. Actually, I'm not being sarcastic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I remember exactly one visceral experience I had that it was William Carlos Williams, my own sense of him. Eh? And it was that crazy poem everybody loves to hate. Um, the wheelbarrow? Yeah, the red wheelbarrow. And I remember wa I was walking across the red <laughs> or orange bridge in Nelson and I was teaching. It would have been 1973. And I remember I had to teach creative writing. So it was going to be... I. I'd taught it before a bit, but not much. And so I was trying to, I was like a week ahead of the students, the way I was thinking about it, right? I thought, well, how am I going to teach contemporary poetry? And, and it was his phrasing and the way he tried to find the rhythm of the body and the rhythm of everyday speech. But it was his imagery, right? You know, everything depends upon, or I, I didn't even get the opening line, right? You know, a red wheel barrel glazed with rainwater beside the white chickens. It's like, what kind of a <laughs> fucking pie is that? Right? But I realized that he was talking about something really important, which is that I almost, everything I had written up to that point in poetry in particular was about ideas. And it came out that way too, right? And all of a sudden I realized it's not in the world. The stuff you're writing isn't in the world, right? It, and Williams is in the world. Mm. He's looking at that wheelbarrow, right? And it's exactly what it is. It, everything does depend on that. You can't ignore it, right? And so that was a huge, humbling, kind of wonderful experience for me. It, 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 it still, I still think about it because I think of this young guy walking across this bridge in some crazy BC wind thinking suddenly, holy shit, I got to write about the world. It's mm. the world I want, not some heaven somewhere, you know, while well, Stevens would say, not this dividing and indifferent blue, right? 
Anyway, that's my answer, and I can't go farther because I'll get lost. But. Okay. I've got right posted on my computer screen here a quote from Wallace Stevens, and I'm not sure where I read it, but it, it's just the necessary angel of reality. And I like that because it. I think yes. that's what you're talking about, John. Yes, absolutely. Being on the bridge. <laughs> Being in yeah, your body no, oh, on the bridge. Yeah. It's funny, I was fooling with this poem Sunday morning the other day, and I was... Just for fun, I would just say, look at those last 10 lines. What's he talking about? He's talking about all these animals in the wilderness doing different things, right? Not talking about anything else. But, of course, he is talking about everything else, too. Mm, right. Oh, you're absolutely right about that. It's breathtaking, actually. Mm. Um, but now... <laughs> now we're going to hear from the real necessary angel of reality. No, she is the necessary angel. Yes. We're going to use that. No. Now there's a great title for your bio. <laughs> That's the necessary. Yeah, necessary. let Jake know. Yeah, he can start. Yeah. Who's afraid of the it? necessary angel? <laughs> we all are. Yeah, no, I, Jason, I just want to say, you know, John and I talk a lot about concrete images, down to earth, real images everyday images and how it's so different from what i paint um with line and color and shape and how they interact and and there's no actual form um in my work mm -hmm. and we have really great conversations about that because we both understand what each is doing but um i just wanted to say that when we were living in um france that one year we went um to switzerland and we saw paul clay's work and he, I don't know if you know his work, but he would work on paper or um, sometimes burlap and he would paint on top of it. And then he would put in um, pieces of newspapers and stuff. And then he would do thin washes over that. And they were usually symbols about music and what else? A music one is the one I have in my head. And um, so they were sim symbolic really. And then, and then when we went into Kandinsky's, um, the galleries that had his work, that's when I really um, clicked onto what he was doing. Because, um, do you know his work? No. Yeah, okay, so he does abstract expression. Kandinsky, okay. Kandinsky, Wassily, I don't know how to pronounce it, Kandinsky. Yeah, that's right. Is it right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, <laughs> Professor Lynch. <laughs> Yeah, he's got a red well, I knew pen. He was going to show up. Yeah, he's got a red pen in his hand right yeah. now. <laughs> Forgive me. Yeah, no. Yeah. So, so I saw his his work and it was abstract expressionism, and it just totally like that. I just totally got what he was doing and was so impressed with it. It's not like I'm painting like Kandinsky, because he's well, incredible. Are. But um, that really kind of made me go into where, where I am right now. And I still look at all his work all the time and, and understand um, kind of what he was doing. And, and Paul Clay is about this. Uh, there's a, a beautiful thing about landscape and, and, and music and, and um, something else. No gravity. Same yeah. Thing. No gravity, the <clears throat> same thing. And, and um, those two in the, you know, 19th century, they, they really informed me and um that's what I taught the kids in school, all the, the artists of um, the 19th century. So about Impressionism and Expressionism and Fauvism. So they were all painting like those people. And of course, I always wanted to do the Kandinsky with them. And they, they loved it. Like the kids, um, they just took it. You know, they, they were far more open in their heads to, 
to abstraction and and even the idea of impressionism with the light and these dots and and that were gl glittering and glistening in that time they were landscapes but if you looked really close at them there could be a, a complete abstraction up close and and the kids i love teaching them that and 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 they were just so open to it so sorry i've got off on tangent <laughs> here that's okay but, um, but so that's what John and I talk about, how he he writes more concretely. Just correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> and um, what? and I paint more abstractly. <laughs> yeah, they're they're almost polar opposites in one way, but they're not in another. So, yeah, the interaction, the interplay between the two of them, if you were both concrete poets or both abstract painters your house would be a catastrophe i think exactly yeah, no <laughs> yeah i'm actually you know you're right i'm probably more messy than he is <laughs> oh yeah because he's con he's you know he he's likes concrete, gravity you know? yeah he's, he's organized and you know he's got things in the right way and i'm yeah, more, on his you know, desk and, yeah. i'll just throw it yeah i'll just throw it over you're here you're the real free spirit then that's what you're saying eh? yeah yeah, yeah. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> until you want it completely perfect yeah and then <laughs> it's where it works but anyway go i should have seen the signs i should have seen the signs a long time ago i should have seen the signs i should have seen those signs a long time ago Dude, could you talk a little bit about um, the intersection in your work of writing and painting, especially as it applies to uh, the language of water and the paintings that you did that were connected to that? Yeah, that that was a really turn. It was a big turning point in my life because I was going to do an exhibition um, about growing up, uh, being diagnosed with systemic lupus and living with it for i guess when i did the exhibition it was probably 35 years by then and so i started doing these little collages and and i don't know if you know but lupus means wolf yes so i had collages uh up in my studio where um a wolf was was attacking and into something on the ground and there was blood all over which is lupus is all about inflammation and so the blood was was representing the inflammation. And, and so I was doing these little collages and then I would put a little prose piece beside it. And eventually the whole studio was um, full of these little collages and um, lots of writing. And eventually there was more writing than there was <laughs> painting or collages. And so my sister actually came in one day and she said, well, it looks like you're writing a book. You're not doing an exhibition. And I said, yeah, I think I am now. <laughs> And so that's when the the whole thing became um, a book, which which has it's it's not a linear type of narrative. It's it's kind of memories and little prose pieces all over the place, and all the experiences that I was having, and and it's about growing up in the valley here and being an artist and and all of that stuff. It's basically just a memoir, and mm. um, 
Yeah, and then at two years after the book came out, um, I did the exhibition, and so it was very abstract. But um, I have a little thing that I wrote that explains it's it's instead uh, it's an artist statement, but it's a prose piece instead of a um, an intellectual writing statement. So I have it here, Jason. Yes, if you have it at hand, please read it. Okay, I'll see if I can just get it. Okay. Yeah, it's here. So this is just something that I always put with my exhibitions. Now there's a little there's a prose piece kind of explaining it. And it's an image. Um, and this is how this this exhibition happened, how it was painted. So it's July 2007. You are floating on your back in Kalamalka Lake. At the edge of your vision is the shoreline. You watch the sun drop with a final benevolent glint behind the far mountain. You hear children splashing and the distant drone of a helicopter scanning the mountains for wildfire. Far beneath you, shadows are held motionless, weighted to the floor of the lake. They are rising now, breaking the water's surface, finding air in the wide open sky. They shift, break apart, form shape, take on color, drift into line, chatter and rise further. They are unremorseful children, thumbing their noses at gravity. It is impossible to deny their invitation, their beckoning. So you let go, feel your body lift and rise above the surface of the water. There now, you are airborne. Mm -hmm. So that's that's lifting, that's bringing myself out of um, the the depression and the the um, symptoms, the manifestations of systemic lupus, and lying in that lake, which you know very well, Calvary yes. Lake. Yeah, and so it's just the idea that all of that turmoil and, and pain is is lifting up from shadows and it's breaking up into the sky and it becomes this joyful thing with children saying, you know, kind of screw you yeah. <laughs> to the disease, right? Sure. And it's also that ties back to no gravity, right? Everything's yeah. floating up and, and yeah. free, free to maneuver again. Yeah, that's right. So that you're not bound to the ground. Right. by something that is so traumatic right yes i see <laughs> um well jude when you were working on that book which i really enjoyed i thought it was terrific but when you were working on it how did you how did you avoid being unduly influenced by the titanic figure of canadian literature who lives in your house <laughs> Yeah, what? it was really hard, Jess. Rough beast. <laughs> no, you know, <laughs> such a hulk, you know, hulking over my shoulder watching me write. <laughs> With his red pen in hand. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Professor, Father Professor Brown. Uh, yeah. I'm not sure about that. Yeah. <laughs> no, it, uh, actually, I, now this is this is all about John because this is this is a you know, beautiful thing, and you know I think he's the most amazing teacher that I've ever seen. I mean, you know, I met him; he was my instructor at university. What? Wait <laughs> oh, a that's minute, a whole, that's <laughs> yeah. a whole other story. You're gonna get the whole podcast canceled now. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah, what is it yeah. called? Uh, Probably. What is it? What's the word? You think it's funny, but what's the word, <laughs> what's the word they were using? Back moral turpitude. Moral turpitude. Yeah. yeah. Well, moral moral turpitude. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Anyway. But no, no. The thing was, Thistledown Press is going to publish it. <laughs> I, okay. Thistledown Press was going to publish it, and um, Sean Virgo was going to be the editor, and so I, I wrote it 
myself. Yeah. And so what we did at night or in the day or whatever, I would read it to you. Did I read it to you or did oh, you, you give you, me sections give, of it? Yeah. yeah. So he would come over and we sit down and he would talk to me. And so he never took the pen <laughs> and corrected anything. Mm. He just talked to me. And, you know, because I wasn't a writer um, in that way, like what he showed me was, you know, how to end a piece. Like usually you write too much at the end, explaining it, so how you can just finish the end of the book in a, in a way that doesn't bog everything down. And, and he would, he would show me how to, um, to make things use the right words, um, too much, not too much um, adjectives, not too much description in that way where you're saying beautiful, you know, great, mm, wonderful right. day or something, you know, like keeping it it more spare, and um, and he kind of, you know, he just really helped, really helped me. Like I feel kind of teary right now because that was a huge thing for me to write that book and to have a guy like John in the house, you know at my side, just kind of teaching things to me all the time <laughs> was really a blessing. Mm. Well, it yeah. was, it was a real thrill for me. Like she's, she's always been a really great writer. I knew that, but she was also one of the best people. She'd run with something like just obsessed. Like I remember this whole thing about adjectives and adverbs and just simply saying, you know, you can take all those out. It's going to be more powerful for sure. Right. Mm -hmm. Very, 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 very nice day. Right? <laughs> Not that I would write that, Jason. No, but... no, no, but that kind of editing was really wonderful. And she'd just go crazy. Like she disappeared like for four days hunting adverbs and adjectives. And she really understood because she was a visual artist, she really understood the importance of technique and composition right right so it was really easy and it was really easy to be quiet and just kind of watch her do this thing and she did it all herself i mean it was well amazing it, but anyway. it was incredible he was incredible there's you know and that's not just because i live with him he he, he was incredible and um and then sean virgo did another thing with me online um and then of course the Thistledown does the line editing. That's the last thing that they do. And mm -hmm. so there's a great guy at Thistledown who, who did all that too. So I felt good when yeah. it was done. Yeah. And I remember when I read it, Jude, I remember thinking this, you know, am I going to get sort of watered down John Lent, you know, about lupus? Is that what this is? And it wasn't that at all. It oh, was a uh, totally a unique voice. And I thought, oh, great. Because you know, the temptation, I suppose, to be unduly influenced with, you know, oh, well, you know, you're, you're putting down, you know, rereading Rock Solid, maybe. And going, oh. Yeah, no, no, that didn't help. And <laughs> no, that, thank you for saying that, though, Jason, because that was, yeah, that didn't happen. Thanks for yeah. the swipe about uh, <laughs> Rock Solid, too. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome, John. <laughs> Could you talk a little bit about the intersection in your work of writing and music? They're sometimes quite separated because the musical forms that I write to are very, very conventional and boxy, right? So if I'm writing a, a like a folk song or, or a, a ballad like The Real World, I'm, I'm working in a pretty tight frame mm -hmm. um, of rhythm and rhyme. Uh, but I also have probably a very deep love of jazz all sorts of jazz and so 
that's totally different and that's a lot closer to what i write than the songs that i write so uh i wrote that i know you read that piece in situ and and uh yeah that's that's just me loving uh coltrane's love supreme right and said imagining a way to use language to try and and imitate what he did right so so there's a huge influence of music and i'm looking for that rhythm and i'm looking for the style even especially of saxophone players or uh, trumpet players like miles davis you know sonny rollins uh yeah just just that thing where you're using sound and you're also using it the fact that there's no sound too right and so mm -hmm. there's uh and 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 maybe especially bill evans uh, and the way he played the piano so so there is this huge connection to the writing uh more than there ever was in some ways but it's a body rhythm and that's why your your opening comments about and uh, body and jude's about gravity are so important because jude's looking for a way to get off the ground and i'm looking for a way to get my feet in it <laughs> it's very different in a way except you end up with the same kinds of joy. Mm. But yeah, so the, the intersection of music and, uh, you know, I know Susan Musgrave to deal with this better than me, but I have always had a feeling because I have so much Irish blood in me through my mom and dad's families that that lyricism, what we, we use the word lyrical to describe the magic sometimes of Irish prose, right? And, I think that's something in my head, like not that I think about it consciously, but I think there is a body rhythm that's in Alistair MacLeod and it's in, you know, there's a Celtic thing happening somewhere. Well, mm. I just heard myself say, there's a Celtic thing happening <laughs> somewhere, man. Yeah. It's going to have another toke. Uh, but there is kind of a, there is a, a beautiful, beautiful musical rhythm um that comes from ireland and, and mm. around there right up i think yeah shamasini has it too yeah do you do you listen to music what when you're writing john you know that's that's such a beautiful question because i cannot write if somebody's making sounds like a voice right i can't write uh to the rolling stones or the beatles or right or, anybody like that it doesn't work for me i get distracted right so um but i can write to jazz and my favorite there's two favorite albums that that i would listen to over and over again and, and it was so great to write to one is bill evans sunday at the vanguard for his light touch eh? like there's something about listening to that while i'm writing that's just so great and they're pat Metheny. Yeah, Pat Metheny and, and a bass player called, oh, what's his name? Jesus Christ. It's my favorite album, but it's called uh, <laughs> favorite Missouri, album. No, The Missouri Sky Short Stories, right? And oh my God, it's it's just mind boggling to me. Uh, it's so beautiful. And so I'll often have that on too, and that really helps me. Will you do that for, for prose and poetry? Yep. No matter what you're working on? Maybe in poetry, sometimes I would pull back and not have anything on. Mm. But I, I think I go into a kind of a zone that doesn't, it, where it doesn't really matter. How about you, Jude? Do you listen to music while you're painting? 
Well, that's an interesting question because um, John's, you know, at the back of the house writing and I'm at the front <laughs> painting. So mm -hmm. he's he's got the jazz music on and I don't know, I don't put on music. Um, I, yeah, I, and I don't have the radio on or anything, but he, I like the jazz music he plays except for Pat Metheny. So there's, there's two songs on that or two pieces that are so harsh and and um kind of um painful <laughs> that that it take i can't stand it so we've come to an agreement that that album won't be on when i'm painting <laughs> right if you're it's scrambling old. some eggs or something it's okay but yeah exactly well i don't even like it when i'm scrambling eggs <laughs> that that's not to say he's not an amazing guy like he's got some great sure. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. it's just not he's my thing. Man. Yeah, he's beautiful, man. Yeah. I know. What's the matter with it? <laughs> Take another toke, Jude. Come yeah, on. exactly. Oh, Come on, lighten up. <laughs> I'm sort of, I'm really envious, Jude, of, you know, you get to work with all this super duper stuff and to play yeah. around with the materials, which is yeah. so fun. And it's so physical in your fingers yeah. and the, um, I can do is sort of alternate notebooks, you know, that's the closest I can get to that kind of stuff. But I am sort of particular and about pens at least. And, you know, I've, I just bought up some bookshelves yesterday for my, I saw a picture of Bronwyn Tate's notebooks all on a shelf. And I thought that's beautiful. I love, yeah. So I immediately ran out and bought some bookshelves to put my own notebooks up. Oh, nice. um, that, you know, that the physicality of it, uh, I'm really envious. Uh, you know, you get to play around, you know, it, it is play in a way that I don't yeah. think writing gets to be very often. But that's really interesting that you just said that, Jason, because John and I had a big talk over coffee the other morning about editing, writing and editing paintings. Mm -hmm. And you can edit your your work and you can you can have it on a computer. So what you had at the beginning is still there and then you can go back in as often as you want to write to to write it. But with painting you can only do that so much you never have what you started with so i envy that jason mm. <laughs> i do that you can do that one last quote and then we'll get into some of your early stuff does this resonate with i i and i don't know who said this but does this resonate with either of you old age and treachery can always overcome youth and skill <laughs> old age and treachery yes <laughs> i love that I take this into the, when I go to the boxing gym and I'm occasionally matched up against 25 year old up and comers, I go, okay, <laughs> old age and treachery, man. Yeah. Yes. You agree, John? You like that? 
Well, of course I. I <laughs> of course you do. Yeah. <laughs> you do actually. <laughs> For years I've been. It is funny because the race is a huge, big thing, eh? Like because I was so young and innocent and open and and enthusiastic. But I'm thinking of when I was 20, 21, 22, and and you know pretty damn innocent. Um, I remember even I think I've told you this story, but you know, like Sheila Watson, who was just so beautiful to me, but I was so young and stupid, right? And remember her now. Talk about this. This will have the whole image in it. Here's old age and treachery staring me down, right? <laughs> I'm young and ridiculous. But anyway, she said, you know, you know what I think about the devil hook, John? Right. Because <laughs> I just told her, geez, I think that's a great novel. And this is coming from someone who's like read a hundred books in total in his life. Yeah. Most you know? of them pirate based. Like <laughs> Anyway, she said, you know what I don't like about uh, how it was received, though, John? I'm going, what the fuck? No. And she said, nobody thinks it's funny. <laughs> and I was standing there in this minus 35 Edmonton <laughs> winter escape and looking at her thinking, funny? <laughs> I didn't think it was funny at all. So, yeah, old age and treachery. She got Years later, I'd be laughing, thinking, boy, she was absolutely right, but at the time, no, I didn't but I, I couldn't admit it. Anyway, there you go. Okay. <laughs> and as something funny to add, when I met Sheila Watson with John very early <laughs> on and she knew she heard my name was Jude, she said, So you're Saint Jude, the patron saint of lost causes. And John said, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Help me. <laughs> Okay, uh, so from the sublime to the to the ridiculous, then with uh, some early shit, who would who would like to go first, and and what are you planning to read? Oh, John, you go first. No, you go first. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> well, Jason, I I love to write, you know, in just English class when I was young, and and then when I I got into high school, I like to write stories, and and then when I took lit from John. Um, I love to write essays, actually. Um, but my early, early shit, um, quick story. Uh, Mom uh, took me to Pen the Penticton Art School one summer to take a, a workshop for a week. And it was a mixed art kind of thing. And um, she was taking flower arranging. <laughs> and uh, and I had to write something. And, and I was 12. And um I only have two lines because I couldn't remember the last two lines of my poem. So this is my early ship. Okay. <laughs> a blue peacock in a jeweled coat struts along the ribbon of false reality. He wonders how a bird can sing and a butterfly can float. And then I can't remember the last two lines. <laughs> the reality product, man. Yeah. you. <laughs> 12 years old, did you say? Because for me, yeah. that's like you're appearing into the future and you're talking about John. Could you read that again? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that. Well, that's what it was. I was I think the butterfly. it is. Yeah. I was the butterfly and he's the peacock. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> a blue peacock in a jeweled coat struts along the ribbon of false reality. He wonders how a bird can sing and a butterfly can float. Yes. Wow. Good. Prescient. And <laughs> yes, yes. Okay, now John's got something here. Okay. Oh, this is so bad. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm blushing. It's great. It's great. It's not 
Yeah, visual. Um, no, but I mean, all in all seriousness. So I was 22. It would have been 1971 at York University in Toronto. Jesus, just to even think of my poor head at that point in my life. But anyway, I'm going to read you. This is called Boshed Again. <laughs> Boshed. So B-O-S-C-H-E-D. Um, Boshed Again. Wind is whistling, winter windows, six floors from the street. My thoughts grow uneasy. Hieronymus is mad for good. In the city, noise is aching, myriads of cars are making symphonies perfected in this wood. Holy Jesus. <laughs> and old Elliot may have had the blues, and Dylan Thomas killed himself with booze. <laughs> they're, they're not facing what I see in my sixth floor reverie, staring on the city like a fool. <laughs> Package after package, stone upon stone, images recurring. There's no life of my own. And if there was a single line that I could call my own, I could take the elevator home. <laughs> Holy crap. Wow. Get him some help. <laughs> Did you say you were 21 at the time, John? Yes. About? Okay. Yeah. When, you, when you look at that, can you tell who you were copying? Yeah, yeah, it's it's so funny some of this stuff. Like, you know, I like I'm going to tell a long story in a very short way, but you, I know you you understand, right? But I was, I had read Elliot especially so deeply that, and and at York I was being asked to study in an area that was at least a hundred years removed from what I was going to be working in, which would have been. Malcolm Lowry, so modernist fiction, right? So mm -hmm. I chose the Renaissance. So on top of reading Eliot so carefully at U of A for so long, now I was reading, you know, Erasmus and John Donne, everybody, Shakespeare, Ariosto, Castle. I was doing everything, right, in the Renaissance and pre-Renaissance. So, so my head was just full of all these models, eh? and. Uh, and, and that's who I'm kind of imagining. They're my company, right? Mm. Strange way, it was probably a good thing because I, I had some pretty critical people kind of looking, you know, in my head, right? Like, that's yeah. ridiculous, <laughs> Mr. Ed. And I still wrote <laughs> again. So good for me. Uh, but it took so long to, yeah, I'm just looking at this old notebook and it. It's, I was excited. I got these exclamation points in it, and oh my god, it's so full of agony. <laughs> the poor kid sitting up on the sixth floor thinking, "There's nothing for me." <laughs> but anyway, that's okay. <laughs> and I use. I'm always referring to you, Hamlet, and you, Proteus, you, Ulysses. <laughs> your chain, your nostos. Bro, what the fuck? Nostos <laughs> means returning home, right? Your Sermione, a gas station cafe, <laughs> where you confuse the Occidental babble from Occidental rock, your accidental seat. Oh, my God. <laughs> occidental wow. rock. Yeah. Wow. A spring gym dandying. So I'm thinking of Joyce now. So there's another influence coming in. Honestly, 
anyway, it was good because I, <laughs> I'm looking at you know my actual handwriting, thinking, okay, yeah, yeah, I'll get it somewhere. But on the other hand, because you've asked for you know writers read their early shit, mm-hmm. um, so then you look for that, right? And and like I'm laughing, but but part of me is quite touched that this young twenty two year old guy is is thinking all these quote deep thoughts, right? Yeah, <laughs> not really knowing how to proceed, right? And so the poem is more about that almost than anything else, right? That he doesn't mm. have. He doesn't have anything yet that's his own, right? And, right, and doesn't have the fundamentals either, yeah, right? Yeah, he doesn't say thank you. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to phone him up from the future. Say, and, and tell him what to do. <laughs> <laughs> tell him about the Celtic stuff that should be happening. That's what he needs exactly. to know. What's wrong with you? You, Proteus. Yeah, exactly. But. <laughs> But yeah, that, you know, building the fundamentals and doing the work. The, and it's it, yeah. that reminds me of boxing. Because when Joe joined my boxing gym, he immediately wanted to be Muhammad Ali. And he kept going, Dada, what about this combination? And what if I try this? I go, no, Joe, just work on your jab first. And this this is your first day. Don't worry about the rope fantasizing about being given the Lifetime Achievement Award. Right? Yes, right from the, the first day first in the lesson. gym. But you got you do have to do all that sort of boring fundamental stuff yeah. first, and and then as you've said, John, then you get to sort of jump off of that and improvise, yeah. right? Yeah. Mm. And it's when you get to the level where your body knows what it's doing, and you you know you can spirit is free to wander, right? Because it you can do the the basic stuff without thinking about it, and then you can ascend to the higher levels, and that goes for boxing and poetry both, right? Yeah, no, no, you're you're absolutely right on the money there. And I think it's hard to even explain, but when I first started teaching creative writing, it was a time when poetry was not accessible to most people. And so there was a part of the nationalist revolution and people like Tom Wayman was that he was going to make it really accessible. And mm-hmm. I was part of that too, right? I, you know, people can come in this door. They don't have to, you know, uh, be some preppy, you know, PhD student. Uh, they, everyone can write, right? Blah, 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 all that stuff. But the, the darker side of that is that you still have to learn the fundamentals and that right. feels <laughs> elitist to some people and it isn't, right? And so the older I got teaching, the grumpier I got about that, probably saying, mm. yeah, well, you just spell, you know, calendar wrong, right? And that's all he has to say. <laughs> And partly it was, I was just astonished, right? Like the phonetic spelling from creative writing students in first year. Like, yeah. Like, Come on. You got to care more than that. And, uh, oh, I've got a spell check that just, yeah. Okay. <laughs> anyway, sorry. I'm revealing this. Too much. Story. Yeah. But that's all right. Too much. That's all right. <laughs> you, Proteus. protest too much. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Anyway. That's. I think sort of interesting that it used to be, you know, you had to have a PhD in this stuff to read it at all, maybe, you know, because who would take the time? Otherwise, it was too difficult and too weird and took too long. And you had to milk the cows anyway. But yes, no, no. Do you think it's gone too far the other way now that there's there are these sort of, I forget the most popular one's name, but these Instagram poets who are 
super duper millionaires now who write very simple, uh, unbelievably oh. accessible, you yeah. know, poems about their feelings. Well, we used to call it, you know, fridge magnets, right? Today is going to be the last day of the first day of Winston Churchill's life. What? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you know, okay, so yeah, but that's such a, oh, that's such an evil setup for me to go on a rant, but no, I won't. Oh, oh no? Okay. Well, well, no, you know. You can, you can rant you if you want so to. Careful. If you don't know what sentimentality is, or cliches are, mm. or, or melodrama, if you don't understand the difference between talking about a really legitimate, deep, complex emotion, and just, you know, doing it in two lines, like, you know, the bird saw me, I know it, right? Okay. Um, <laughs> so what? Right. So, <laughs> so if you, if you, and it's not true of all, you know, young, beautiful young people writing, but hmm. there is a tendency sometimes to sell, as there is sometimes in performance poetry, is to play to the audience. Right. And, uh, and so what you're doing is you're just playing some pretty fluffy stuff. And that's what it is. Right. And so it yeah. doesn't matter. It's still what it is. Right. It's, it's okay. And, and uh, you can even admire it to a certain degree, but it's not very good. It's not very good. But at the same time, I think it shows weirdly the power that poetry still has. You know, the Absolutely. people want to still write it and want to be connected with it, you know, and want to read it, actually, even if it's not that good. It makes people well, feel good to say, I'm reading poetry. There's a middle road, too. Like, you know, I'm not saying for a second that it should be this elitist thing that uh, mm. I grew up reading, yeah. uh, or that I would have to be introduced to every every poet's very complex life or all the criticism written about blah, blah, blah. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that it has to be good. Like, you have to have some sense of the syntax of our language and how to use words. and How to spell calendar. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then it's going to be great. Like, Allen Ginsberg wrote one of the most beautiful poems. I mean, how, right? What a great... What a great achievement, right? And it's written in ordinary speech, and it's gorgeous. He didn't have to have a PhD to write that poem. Hey, Jason, I'll read you one more. Okay. With me, the early shit stuff could go on forever, but the prop is not very good, right? But this was actually published, this piece. Okay, so here's me writing obsessively about booze, which, of course, I did for most of my life so what age is this John? okay so no this is more like 25 and I'm, I've, I've moved from toronto to teach nelson so this is a poem from rock solid right which was my first book mm. i, I love that funny? little book and it opened everything up for me in lots of different ways pardon me well but you think this piece is crummy kind of Anyway, I'm not saying it's crummy. I'm just saying it's early shit. Okay. Okay. That's why Monaghan said what he said, that he never felt that he could write. And he felt mm-hmm. it all the time. And that's the fraud syndrome. And I think we mm-hmm. all have. Yeah, we all have that. Yeah. Mr. Lett, yes. Yes. <laughs> Get up the hell out of this classroom. <laughs> What? Yeah, no, I'm going. I'm going. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Anyway, no, this poem is just called The Queen's Hotel Bar. 
and and you know i'm not trying to sell it down the river but i'll let you decide okay the queen's hotel bar red terry towel field draft beer 25 cents a glass potato chips beer nuts hamburgers chicken on the wall 15 portraits of english queens discover history in the same face different hair different dresses but the same face the artist's face i guess an aluminum altar fitted with a cash register and bedecked with food and glasses seizes the front wall a fortress of order after 11 no matter how sober you might be you're patronized You can say what you like. You haven't lived here. You're walking home in some holy mosaic. As it crumbles, you're amused and indifferent to the sound of your scream, and your hands reach recovering patterns. I remember one night, California, Vancouver, Prince Edward Island, and myself. It is so difficult. A temple for many reasons. More than this panic, this easy laugh. More than that maudlin flick of the head to the wall or this vein in the forehead twitching to that jukebox's predictable smile. Nelson has five bars in a three-block circle. No, don't say dead end. A temple for more than that. Yep, there you go. Mm. I'll all around you. <laughs> Let your feelings shout. You've seen Love Actually, right? No, it's Bill Nye and Bill Nye, Love Actually. Acid Head, ex rock singer. He's so good. John, how does it feel for you to to look back at that stuff? Well, it's funny. If I was being really serious and not making fun of myself, um, I would say that I, I'm fascinated by the poems in a rock solid being so formal, right? And tight, kind of. Uh, and, and pretty heavy-handedly serious uh, in a way that I wouldn't be now quite in the same way. I still am pretty serious when I'm writing poetry, especially. Like in C2 is almost unbearably serious at times, right? So mm. I'm not saying I don't do that, but I don't. I hope I'm not as heavy-handed and obvious as I was sort of in that poem, right? Just kind of overdoing things a bit. That's a good way to look at how do you teach creative writing? How do you get students to be less heavy-handed and obvious? Yeah, mm -hmm. and it's funny because those little details we were talking about earlier, like it's really, really interesting actually. Because when Jude was talking about the language of water, so talking about adjectives and adverbs, right? Like they do that kind of work, and you don't even know they're doing it, right? They they mm. make it more serious, maybe a little more melodramatic, a little more heavy-handed, right? Right. Like that one line in here. Um, Oh, I forget what it was. It is so difficult. That's all by itself. And it's like, oh, John. Right. And so something in me <laughs> admires the young person for opening up his voice, right? And starting to write his own poetry. So I love that. Yes. And I really do love that. Uh, yeah. And then another part of me thinks, yeah, well, you were on your way to opening up stuff, but you weren't there yet. Yeah. That's a complicated reaction isn't it where you because i have that f same feeling the exact same feeling with some of my early stuff too where i go i'd i have some affection for 
for the guy hidden behind all this posing and uh right. and prosing and and you know there you big, go big shottery right yeah and i can i because it's me i can sense that guy behind there and i can see the tricks i was using to try to be a little more important and uh interesting than i than i was or you know you know what i mean so uh-huh. yeah having that compassion for that writer but also go hey what yeah <laughs> do a little more work maybe yeah yeah exactly right and and like i i wouldn't touch that poem now like uh but but it intrigues me right so right. it's found something here jason oh i jason do you want to ask john something more do you did you find something that sounds great. Uh, yeah i i found something but are you guys uh you want to still talk about what you're talking no, I've been listening to John for hours. So it's oh, right. okay. Well, no, I, I no, I, I just happens. I'm just listening to you guys. And... It's what always happens. Yeah. No, no. I'd love to hear some something from you, dude. Bird. Now hold it. So, I know it. The bird. This again, always happens. Bird. I love it. I love it. There would be a third line there. Oh. This always happens. No, I and just right. listening to you guys, like I'm thinking, okay, so you're talking about early writing. I was talking about writing um, prose pieces to go with my paintings and, and um, exhibitions. And when you were talking about overdoing things, and, and um, I'm looking at this piece that I wrote a long, long time ago, and um, I'm looking at it and thinking how flat it is, and how <laughs> solid it is, and, and kind of not exciting and then you know I go into the painting and that's when I get all free so for someone who isn't a writer it's harder to do that kind of thing and Mm. and I'll just read this piece because I I think listening to you guys and you know how good you both are (laughs) this this to me is a is a person who's writing something but um yeah it just doesn't have the the full depth that it should have so okay yeah um, You are walking along a road overlooking Kalamalka Lake. You see a wind is causing a swell over the water. A child in a pink sweater runs behind a tree in a yard below you. You see orange poppies growing in gardens and clouds shifting light across surfaces. All of this information is stored in your memory, some of it consciously, some unconsciously. Later, you sit down to paint this stored information reveals itself on papers undulating lines backlit shapes pink swirls of color surrounded by whirling forms the child's joy the air takes on weight and is delicately fractured around a morning sun everything is alive and you can feel it so it is it is kind of flat <laughs> and um but that's where this the joy of of the having no gravity in in my abstractions that's yeah. where that joy comes um <laughs> <It's flat. clears throat> sure. that could have been sure? jason running by the way could have been jason yeah, he, in my, yes yeah the, actually it wasn't you know our, our family cabin is not far no, from it's up where the college where i grew up yes yeah so yeah it probably so, was me well, yeah, yeah, was, yeah. yeah probably was in my pink shirt in grade nine yeah yeah yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> Pink shirt in grade nine. <laughs> exactly. I did. I had a famous, famous pink shirt in grade nine. It's true. Did you? Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I, I think I know what you mean, Jude, because there are a couple of things there that I, my mental red pen was coming out. You know. Yeah. 
but I don't think it's flat. I just thought it could use some trimming. That's all. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. And so that's where, you know, when I was starting to write um, about painting, right. you know, I didn't necessarily, like, I wasn't trained like you were and John was, obviously. And so I really started from nothing. And um hmm. Try, you know, they're, I, ho I hope they're a bit better now, but um, I really like to do that. I like to to write with yeah. things. I still like to write Actually, with these I, things. Actually, I'm kind of hoping that I'll be able to convince Jude to write another book. Yes. One thing we didn't say earlier was that when she wrote that book, it was the year 2000, and uh, she was, like, possessed. <laughs> she just wrote that book in a trance. Obsessed. Yeah. Well, <laughs> about writing sure. it. Yeah. John and Jude, thank you so much. For oh, this. Thank, you. thank you. That thank was you. absolutely wonderful. That to was so much fun. And, and uh, honestly, I just and admire thanks. you so much, Jason, what you've done. It's just yeah. amazing. And how you've lived your life, too. You're yeah. amazing. Thank you yeah. for that. Thank you. Thank I, you. Yeah, no, it's just great. Yeah. that I had done wrong 
In my way to be free. 